The boogeyman is real, and you found him. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. What's blood for, if not for shedding? I'm your number one fan. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? We all go a little mad sometimes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> I am Dracula. We have such sights to show you. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I am the eater of wolves and of children. What's in the fucking box? They're coming to get you, Barbara. One by one, we will take you. Never get out of bed again! You gotta be fucking kidding. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Welcome to prime time, bitch! Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. It means it's time for another Week in the Horror... Oh, sorry, another episode of Week in Horror Podcast. I can't talk tonight, but there's a reason for that. It is the only podcast where there are never any leftovers. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us here at the top of the week, remember, we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube. We hope you st- we hope to see you in the live chat. You're invited. Come join us. This week, we are covering select horror films released November 5th through November 11th. Thank you all so much for joining me. I am JL. Yes, I'm here alone. I'm here in the office alone today. And um, yep, flying solo. That's probably why we started on time. So there's a reason for that. You know, there really, really is. So uh, I, number one, for some reason, I'm just, you know, having trouble collecting my thoughts because I am, as as a good friend of mine uh, named Irish Demon would say, I am absolutely knackered. I am knackered and cream crackered because I've spent... The last, uh, I spent like, oh, so about the last week, you know, going back and forth between Eugene and I, we were working on finishing the script and for a script for this feature film. And, uh, that we're trying, that we're trying to get kick off and get produced, you know, and start, you start filming before the end of the year. And, uh, woof, I, you know, I think it was like, we, we cranked it out. I think uh, we cranked it out in a little less than a week. So like he, he, like I worked on it then, or he worked on it, then I worked on it, then he worked on it, then I worked on it. And we kind of traded back and forth when, you know, he would go to a gig and work that and I would, I had time off and I would work on it and then you know, we would trade off and, you know, it was just nonstop. And so like in the last like 48 hours, you know, before this show, I just like, I had all my concentration on that and, you know, finally, you know, finally cranked it out. The script is about a hundred pages long. And so we knocked it out pretty quickly, you know, for a, you know, for a script, you know, to knock out a feature film. And that, that short amount of time is just wild. Just trying to like balance it between the two of us woof so yeah it was it was wild so but uh, i am like i i think i'm good i think i'm okay i think i'm energized <clears throat> you know i am here alone so i gotta keep i gotta keep the energy up otherwise people are gonna be like i don't want to listen to this nonsense but uh we have some interesting selections tonight we really really do some a couple of weird ones really but some interesting topics of conversation to have which i'm which i'm excited to i'm excited to dive into um i don't know if eugene will be joining me he's probably zonked out somewhere or he's stuck on set or he's in a meeting i'm not 100 sure but uh whatever it is i know he's kicking butt kicking butt and taking names i'll probably hear uh hear whatever you know an update later on but uh before we get started tonight first and foremost let's get up that amazing patreon banner there's all those amazing individuals all their names on there that help us to make this show possible and a huge giant thank you thank you to each and every one of you who helps support the show because last night i know not a lot of people got the notification but on discord we premiered 
11 to 6, which was the latest kind of co-production between Johnny O's Insomniac Films and Weekend Horror. And so we actually put that out there. Uh, we actually debuted that. We watched Trick or Treat last night in the Discord. And of course, we watched that one as kind of like a matinee, kind of like a preview. So we watched that one first and then we watched Trick or Treat. So it was a lot of fun. We hung out in the theater last night. But uh, but yeah, that was uh, we wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for y'all. If it weren't for y'all's support. So we wanted to show you kind of the few, the fruits of our labor and show you our latest production. So, you know, you know, do watch those notifications. If you're in the Weekend Horror Discord, the link is in the description. Keep an eye on those notifications because that's when we do our premieres to show everybody all the amazing work that the team here and all of our supporters have helped to you know, bring about. So I we do appreciate that. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed it. We will show it again. I promise. We will show uh, 11 to 6 again. And... Um, you know, there will be more premieres coming along in the future, but yeah, keep an eye on those notifications because you never know what's going to pop up. So to kick things off, let's see uh, who, who do we have in the live chat tonight? You can tell I'm, this is going to be a, a funky show. I am like all fucking over the place. I really, really am. I absolutely am. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fucking muddle through. We're going to, we're going to power through, power through like Jason walking from the graveyard to Camp Crystal Lake. We're just going to power through everything, everything that comes in our path. So first and foremost, I see Ronan LS name is here. Good to see you, bud. Uh, Gabba Gabba to you. He says, that was weird. I was out killing zombies, but they were all carrying bags of candy. So strange. Yeah, agreed. It is odd. It's just that odd night, you know. Travis Brown, good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for being here. It's this evening, y'all. Hope all of you are now dealing with Mariah Carey now. Absolutely. It is the uh, time of the beast. Uh, Mariah Carey herself has risen from the depths to bring her carols with her and entrance everyone into running to the nearest store and buying shit. So uh, beware, uh, Mariah Carey is out there. Now, I myself have not heard the jingle jangle, so I don't know if I'm going to hear it. I'm going to try not to hear it, but it does have a tendency to sneak up on you. So be careful when you turn on your radio. Be aware. The safest thing you can possibly do is simply leave it on YouTube, play that wherever you go, and listen to nothing but Weekend Horror, because you won't ever hear that jingle here. I promise you. So beware. Just a heads up. You know, like the little safety advisory. Safety advisory from, you know, the place where it's Halloween every single day. Uh, good to see you, Sherry Tilly. Thanks so much for being here tonight and as well. Casey Cooper as well. Thanks so much for being here. And Strange Lex790 says hello, everyone. Good to see you, Strange Lex. Uh, Casey Cooper says, happy, happy All Saints Day, JL. Thank you so much, Casey Cooper. And happy Dia de los Muertos. Be sure to get those sugar skulls out because it's a lot of fun. But uh, but yeah, happy Dia de los Muertos. I said it right the first time. And All Saints Day. Good to see you. Sarcasm, good to see you, bud. Says good evening. Friends to the friends to the end. We are friends to the end. Thank you so much, Sarcasm. Good to see you. Denova28. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Charlie Welch. Welchie, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you, Chief. Thanks so much for hanging out. See all these amazing channel members that are in the live chat right now. Yes, you too can support this channel. If not via Patreon, you know, or through or through the PayPal, you can support with channel memberships. And you get access to the channel badge. And of course, all the emojis we made for you, all the horror icons that we have in there. So Please enjoy. Enjoy those. Uh, good to see you. Let me see. Who else we got here? Javier Hara is here. Says, hey, guys, Jello Jello doing an episode after Halloween. Sacrilege. We must do an episode after Halloween. Oh, five seasons. We've never missed a week. You know, we we have in the past, you know, had to delay an episode to like Thursday. Well, originally, you see, we're like, we're like you know, like your favorite uh, we're like your favorite show on on network television. Like we'll start off the you start off the series on like Tuesday, and then we'll move to like Thursdays, and then we'll be a center on Wednesday. So that's kind of what happened is we moved around the week to try and figure out what was best. And so we Tuesday wound up being too early. There wasn't enough shakedown time in between 
uh, in between the last episode and prep for the you know, the next one. So, because you know, the, there was too much week, so people were too busy, and then we had the weekend to prep, and we didn't have enough time in between that and Tuesday. Then we moved it to Thursday, and we had the exact same problem on the other side. So Wednesday is right where it started. Wednesday seemed to be the best day to possibly do this. So we simply we can't miss an episode. We can't. We haven't yet. We haven't missed a week since 2019, and we don't plan on starting now. Uh, but good to see you, Javier Hara. Uh, left-handed Jedi says hello, hello. Good to see you, left-handed Jedi. Thanks so much for hanging out. Appreciate you being here. Elizabeth S., good to see you. Thank you so much for being here tonight, hon. Brudel, always good to see you. Who else do we have here? Who else? Do we? Sherry Telly says, no, I missed it. No, you'll get the notification. We'll see you on the next one. We It was about, it was about what, I kicked it off at like 9 o'clock. So it may have been a little late for some people. People may have still been out partying um, or you may have already been asleep. Denova 28 says, I was dead asleep, but don't worry. Just keep an eye. We'll, we will definitely show it again. Ivy Gentry, good to see you. Says, I'm here. Good to see you, Ivy. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Ooh, let's see. Yes, it will be a power muddle, Case Cooper. It absolutely will be. Oh, uh, let me see. Denova 28 says, funny enough, I was watching Trick or Treat with my fiance while y'all were streaming it. It's a good show. Classic movie to watch every single Halloween. It's like the quintessential perfect halloween film other than you know like say john carpenter's halloween but as far as like a halloween anthology film it's pretty much the best you know mike doherty did you know knocked it out of the park and they turned around for christmas did it with krampus so you know i love trick-or-treat i watch it every year occasionally sometimes i watch it you know if i'm boy if i was like oh i haven't seen this in a minute i'm gonna watch it again but every halloween it is tradition we watch trick-or-treat here in the house can't miss it can't miss it all right, I think I got everybody. So it's good to see everyone. Thank you so much for hanging out. Casey Cooper says, did you see Walken made an unscheduled appearance in SNL last week? I did not. I may have to check that out, find it on YouTube. Definitely, I may have to see that. All right, so seeing as how I have not gotten a message from Eugene, which probably means he's either asleep or he's busy, but I, I'm willing to bet he's asleep. So uh, why don't we just go ahead and kick things off? We'll just go ahead and start things off because first and foremost, um, I came across a film, you know, before we dive into, before we dive into the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, I came across a movie that's, that's coming out in 2024. It was crowdfunded in part on Indiegogo, which, uh, by the way, several, you know, several people out there, there's some, you know, just let you know, there's some amazing directors out there who have projects on Indiegogo that are crowdfunding that are worth at least a look just to see kind of like what's going on there. Um, which I'm seeing a lot of people have success crowdfunding via that way. And uh, the people who are involved in this film are were several producers and crew members who worked on Terrifier and Terrifier Two. So there's a there's a lot of you know connected tissue between those two films, between Damien Leone's productions and of course this film. So uh, the movie is called Stream. Okay, it's called Stream. I don't want to spoil anything about it just yet because we will talk about it here in a moment. But the trailer is out for this, and if you haven't seen it yet. I wanted to show it to you here on Weekend Horror. Wanted you to see uh, this trailer because it is, it's pretty wild. So here I give you the trailer for Stream. So yeah, that was the trailer for Stream. It's not out yet. It's scheduled to be out in 2024, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but no specific date. They're just angle. They're just aiming for 2024, and they uh, partially, you know, funded this with 100, 180000 dollars that was raised on raised on Indiegogo, which um, was one of the you know, like say you know, set a couple of records there. But uh, what got me was that the number of horror icons that are like in this in this kind of like uh, 31 kind of like Rob Zombie's 31 style film 
where people are brought together and then pitted against them. Uh, Travis Brown says the Hunger Games meets Saw, pretty much, kind of like in that, you know, in that sense. And uh, but this film stars Jeffrey Combs, obviously of Reanimator fame, you know, like legend Star Trek fame, legendary character actor, Daniel Harris, Halloween fame, D. Wallace, uh, who you know is you know everybody's mom in the eighties. You know, she practically raised us more than our parents did. Uh, Tim Reed, who if you remember him, he was uh, Dick Halloran in uh, the uh, the nineteen ninety Stephen King It. Uh, miniseries and of course you know like you know legendary character actors going all the way back to like you know simon and simon like that he was like he was like he played the character of downtown and simon simon venus flytrap at w KRP in cincinnati uh mark holton uh felissa rose felissa rose from uh summer uh, summer party or sorry uh um sleepaway camp sleepaway camp tony todd who's Candyman, daniel roebuck who is a longtime favorite of, of rob zombie who was in a number of his films um, Dave Sheridan, uh, who was the guy, uh, Dave Sheridan, who played Doofy in Scary Movie, and Terry Alexander, um, and David Howard Thornton, who played, who was, you know, known as Art the Clown. So there's a, so many people, you know, in this one. Um, <laughs> Casey Cooper says D. Wallace. That explains a lot about you, GL. It absolutely does. D. Wallace was everybody's mom. She was, she was my mom in the 80s. This was, that's why I was a little weird, you know, when we were kind of like, when I met her, it was kind of some flirtation back and forth. I, I, I was more, I was like, ah, uh, it was, it was, it was very, it was very, very odd. It was just, you know, kind of confusing. It really, really was. But apparently she dug the beard. Maybe. I don't know. She could have just been being nice. I have no idea. You know, I have no idea. But Johnny would tell me that she was flirting with me. I think she was just being nice. But it was, it was, it was very strange. You know, I, I was... I was very confused in certain areas of myself. I'm not 100% sure, but I love D. Wallace. I uh, love D. Wallace to death. And of course, she's in this, you know, it's a whole bunch of horror icons all throughout this bad boy. And uh, they managed to, you know, secure all these individuals to bring them on for this horror film. And I am, I, I'm freaking excited about it. I really, really am. So I don't know. Uh, that's right, Mark Holton, Mark Holton from uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. That's right, you know, and the Leprechaun films. So a whole bunch, all these names. So they brought in all these individuals, and apparently it is a massive, gory, psycho craziness. And I think very much in the vein of like Rob Zombie's Thirty One with Jeffrey Combs and kind of the, um, uh, kind of the um, Malcolm McDowell role in that one. But it should be interesting. You know, it should be, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. it. Should be intriguing. So keep an eye for more information about the movie Stream. Supposedly coming out sometime in 2024. No date yet, but I guess we will find out. I'm curious. Let, definitely let us know down in the comments. Let us know in the comments below if you're looking forward to it, especially with that number of names that are attached to the film. And, of course, I don't think the trailer spoiled too much. So let us know down in the comments or at weekendhorrorgmail.com if you're looking forward to the, to the upcoming horror film stream from the producers, of, producers and makers of Terrifier and Terrifier 2. Very, very curious. All right. I hope everybody's doing all right tonight. My energy is just like all you can tell. I'm kind of like, whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm telling you, writing like that is fucking intense. It's just, it goes and then you got to, uh, er. I'll tell you, and this is, this is a little something. This is what's so important because this was so aggravating What you kind of like, and it really, it just really fucked me up. And I let Eugene know about it as well, because I was writing and writing on a computer obviously is a hell of a lot more efficient than writing, you know, by hand or writing on a typewriter or something of that nature. It's obviously more efficient. I'm, I'm very good at it and I can write, write very pretty quickly twice while I was writing this bad boy. And I happen to be using final draft at the time. Usually I use Trelby because Trelby's a little bit more, uh, Trelby's a little bit more user-friendly and uh, I can type in it just in, just as fast. And I really have never had any problems with it of years. Number one, also because it's free, you don't have to pay for it. 
Well, I was like, you know, screw it because Eugene uses final draft. I use Trelby. Trying to intersperse between the two is such a pain in the ass. I said, fuck it. I'm going to go ahead and download a trial of final draft. And I started uh, started working on that. So I started working on final draft like this. Final draft, uh, final draft 12 is currently what it is. And uh, final draft has an auto save feature, which is, oh, that's great. It'll just automatically save every three minutes. And you can set it. You can set the time. And then you just let it go. And it it'll, won't prompt you. It'll just auto save. Kind of like Adobe Premiere. Kind of like Premiere. Because I do all my editing in Premiere. So it'll just auto save for you. That's, that's great. Unless the fucking thing crashes for no reason and just closes before it hits an autosave. It did that to me twice last night. Twice this fucking thing crashed. And both times I lost around 10 pages. 10 pages I'd written of like dialogue, action, see like all that shit, setting up stuff. And this was all in the third act. All writing the third act, you know, 10 pages, like like nine or 10 pages gone. And the setups and the freaking dialogue and everything. And you know what happens? Anybody who writes it, like Casey Cooper says he's doing Nano, Nano Remo right now, which is the November writing challenge. So Casey Cooper, you know, when you write something like that and then you lose it and then trying to recall exactly how that dialogue went or how those scenes were played or how you described them out, how, whatever you happen to be writing is always a pain in the ass, a super pain in the ass. So yeah, uh, and unfortunately, I was able to get through it because, you know, luckily my brain kind of works that way and I was able to kind of hold on to it. But it's, you know, there's going to be some slight differences. You may make it a little bit more succinct the way you write it the second time. You may you may add more to it because now you're thinking about it again. I don't know. But it is always a super pain in the ass. And it just, ugh. So I had to deal with that. Luckily, we finished it. Or I finished it at about five in the morning. I was a little bit before five. It was like, you know, maybe four there was like that. And I shared it over to uh, Eugene. Now he's running with it and he's doing this thing. And I guess they're doing like, you know, they're doing all the checks on it. But man, writing, it could take it out of you. And it was nonstop yesterday. Plus, it was really, really fun, you know, being interrupted by the, by being interrupted by trick or treaters because it would be like, do, 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 do like this. And then the door would deal. And I have to go, like, you know, hold on to the dogs or I have to get the candy while Angela holds the dogs. And so it was just back and forth, like, for about an hour and a half. It was like, oh, I have to leave, leave, give like five minutes and then give the run. That was, that was, uh, that was interesting, intriguing. It was a new experience. We'll say that it was a new experience. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, let me see. Uh, left-handed Jay says, I use Word and Grammarly myself. Not bad. Grammarly will keep you, will keep your grammar correct. And of course, Word works as well, you know, uh, using, because uh, I have Word as well when I do my stuff for my for my personal channel, uh, when I move my scripts over to that, so I can check, so I can do that. But um, I just find that, you know, with the, with the screenwriting programs, it's really, really good because the, uh, the formatting is built into it. So you can automatically jump so you don't have to format everything to look, to look correct. Which is, you know, I always find really, really good. Oh, uh, let me see. Anna, Anna, good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Oh, he says he had a shit day. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Anna. But guess what? You're here, and it's better. No one ever has a shit day when they're hanging out with Week in Horror. We do appreciate you being here, Anna, Anna. Thanks so much. Uh, Case Cooper says he used a Scrivener. Very nice. Very good. I know some people use AutoCrit because AutoCrit can really help. And AutoCrit has, AutoCrit has a lot of functions. If you're uh, if you're uh, subscribed to their Premiere, uh, their Premiere Pro, or subscribed to their premium program but autocrit has a lot of good stuff in it as well not to mention they do a lot of like online youtube stuff where they support people where they support writers and give a lot of tips and do a lot of like online workshops that you can go to their youtube channel and what and you know and be a part of those so they do a lot of really, really cool stuff over at autocrit i did them for a little bit 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, my eyes, it was just, it was just a little too expensive for what they were offering, but they do have, but their online feature, their autocrit website is really fantastic. This episode of weekend horror is not sponsored by any of these programs. It's not, they're just ones that I happen to like, you know, ones that I've used and ones that I happen to like, and you know, some that the, uh, that the live chat likes like as writers. So any of you writers out there that are listening to this, this is a, a bunch of fantastic resources that you could utilize you know, that can help you in your writing endeavors, whether you're a novelist or you do short stories or you do screenplays or you do stage plays, whatever it happens to be, or you're just writing copy, just writing copy for commercials. Who knows? You know, there's a lot of resources that you can use out of there. Case scriptures, I use pro writing aid as well. Absolutely. There's so many out there. Find the one that works best for you to help you in your writing endeavors. Absolutely. Like my, my like myself, I have a number that I, I have a number of them in Final Draft, Trelby, Autocrit helps with my novelizations. But uh, for screenwriting, I like Trelby because it's free to download. No frill. No, you know, it's, it's basically no frills, just exactly what you need. Really, really user interface friendly. If you like all the hardcore shit, definitely go with Final Draft. They have a 30-day free trial. And then, of course, if you like it, you can buy it. If not, just dump it. But, you know, it's it's decent. It's decent. A bit of a higher learning curve, but it works. Yeah, we've been talking, you know, talking about writing. That's what we do here. As a as a working writer, that's just part of what we do here. So, all right, who is ready to dive into tonight's selections? Now that I'm done wasting time to see if uh, anybody, if see if Eugene or anybody else is going to show up, which apparently they're not. So, all right, let's go into our first selection for tonight. Ooh, we're going all the way across the pond. Oh, Sir Kev says, I have zero creativity. I look at a blank page and I see a blank page. <laughs> I know, it can be tough getting started. It can all right, for our first one, we're going to go across the pond, uh, released November 6th, 1974. A little bit of a weird one here, kind of a, kind of a mental, kind of a mental little pick we have here. Uh, Frightmare. Let's check out this trailer. Cue up the terror tube. All right, that was the trailer for Frightmare, also known as Cover Up, and in America, Once Upon a Frightmare, um, directed by the legendary Pete Walker, written by David McGilvray, and of course starring Rupert Davies, Sheila Keith, Deborah Fairfax, Paul Greenwood, and Kim Butcher. The story follows a, uh, a couple who were imprisoned years ago in a mental asylum, in a mental institution uh, for, you know, some very, ter very terrible crimes, and were uh, as Dorothy and Edmund Yates, who were then released back into society. Dorothy and Edmund have a daughter. Actually, they have two daughters, one of which is aware that they are still alive. The other one, a younger, the younger daughter, is not. And as uh, events unfold, it uh, begins to become apparent to the elder daughter that there was something very, very wrong with the youngest daughter, that maybe her mother's, you know, problems have, you know, you know, jumped down, you know, have been passed on to her. And it may be possible that Dorothy, uh, Dorothy and Edmund are up to their old tricks. So um, this one was this one was fascinating. Now, I will say, uh, what was it, Sir Cap says, nature saw fit to grant me insane intelligence instead of creativity. I feel it balanced out. Good, yeah, that's good. Good on you. So this one is a little, little weird. Number one, it, it, I think it, it think it has to be said, first and foremost, that Frightmare is, is absolutely a British horror. It's a British horror through and through. There is, it, it's in the sense that it's extremely dry. Like, the, the dialogue between individuals is very dry. The interaction is extremely dry. So it's very, very British in all of its sense, even in its horror sensibilities, it's extremely British. The way these individuals talk to each other, emotions never get extremely high. People get hot. People get hot. You know, they'll like yell at each other, but it's not, 
I would say, as visceral. The dialogue is not you know rooted in the visceral, uh, the visceral nature of like American horror. So people don't really allow, allow their emotions to kind of overwhelm them. So which is very, very interesting. Um, Sir Kevin says, this movie felt very much like a stage play. I would agree. I would agree. Very, very almost uh, like like the blocking and everything was all like staged. Like everything, uh, everything's almost like, you know, we have to put on this facade. It's like I said, it's very, very British. This kind of like this facade, this stiff upper lip, this like, you know, we have, this is who we are. We are the British. And that was kind of, it was kind of weird in that sense. I think it kind of like, it was, it was almost, it kind of keeps you off balance. It keeps the audience off balance. It's like you have a sense of the film in one way that there's something very, very gruesome and horrible, which there is, you know? And then of course, this almost kind of like British sensibilities about everything, even the killers themselves, even the, the killers themselves, which is really, really odd. So I love that, that, that was intriguing. That kept me watching. Not to mention the film itself is shot beautifully. Walker did a fantastic job as to how he was framing everything to showcase uh, essentially how each environment is a reflection of the individual's mental uh, mental states. Because one thing I thought was really, really good was in the 1970s, it is anybody who's like looked into it all knows that mental health in the in Britain, especially in the 70s, that mental health was not really handled in the best of means that into that the typical the typical tactic of dealing with those who had mental illness and mental illness included many things that some you know that nowadays we understand are not mental illness so this would include members of the lgbtq community um individuals who were you know who may have been slightly less social than people who didn't you know respect social graces or social niceties individuals who were problematic to their families were typically shuttered away and that's kind of what happens. It's it ultimately is you know one of the great failings of early seventies mental health, especially across the pond, and informed mental health here in America as well. Is that dealing with individuals like these was often seen as too problematic and too much of a chance to embarrass the family name and possibly do harm. So you get them, you get the whole the whole family ostracized. So typically these individuals are just like shuttered, locked away, and kind of forgotten about, which is ostensibly what happened with the characters of Dorothy and Edmund Yates. Locked away for all these years, forgotten about. One of the daughters doesn't even know they're still alive, and you know, people just try to like put it out of their, put their crimes out of their minds, and we don't talk about it anymore. Like I said, quintessentially British. And it goes to show that in this particular scenario, we see that Dorothy is obviously the the unstable of the two. Dorothy and Edmund. Edmund himself, the 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 stepfather, Edmund is very much just a very weak individual who is both in love with and terrified of his wife, Dorothy. And Dorothy is very much extremely emotionally unstable, uh, prone to hair, like, 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 you know, like hair finger was, was this hair trigger, like legit with, you know, like prone to triggers that are like off the drop of a hat, little things will set her off. And then all of a sudden she falls back into that, the, the you know, the, the tactics that she learned at the asylum so the acting in itself is very good you know i thought that each individual was extremely believable um even the kind of like you know the zany younger daughter who's just like going you know like literally is just you know flashing out and you know arby you know just kills somebody at one point for insulting her and actually for not selling for not selling her a drink because she's underage wind up just like you know killing this guy and dumping him in a dumping him in a car boot like you know nothing was a problem so I liked each one of the individuals, everybody, how everybody interacts. And the, of course, the dynamic between Dorothy and Edmund was also really good to showcase just how much, how difficult those, you know, those relationships can be, especially when the society dictates that an individual act a certain way, despite 
the reservations they have about other things. So he's like, you would say, oh, I have extreme reservations about, you know, my wife's behavior, but I am expected to behave in this manner. And therefore it kind of overrides that and, you know, puts me in a really, really bad situation, which I thought Walker handled brilliantly. Now, especially, you know, when your wife is like, you know, like murdering people, like like drugging and murdering people, you know, in her house, lonely people in her house, and then like cutting out their brains and eating them and shit. Even though it never shows it, it doesn't go that hardcore, but she definitely is killing these people, cutting out their brains and eating their brains. So, so cannibalism. So there's cannibalism and gore and all kinds of nastiness. But, uh, and you know, like at one point, like the younger daughter finds them and she's like, oh, this is great. You know, this is the family's all back together again. Oh, it's really, really, you know, and of course it ends on a very sour note. But this was the beauty of director Paul Walker, or sorry, director Pete Walker, not Paul Walker, but Pete Walker. Pete Walker is a legendary director for those who are not familiar with him. And uh, you should, you should. Born in 1939, you know, he's an English director and his specialization has always been horror and sexploitation films. This is what he typically all like what he's done, which makes him kind of like the American equivalent of like Frank Handelotter or Abel Ferrara, you know, along those lines. Um, and maybe uh, you could say even splattered. You can even say um, uh, Herschel, like Herschel Gordon Lewis. So like individuals who really try to push the envelope. The interesting thing about Pete Walker was that Pete Walker, is very much that was is very much the kind of director who literally makes films just to kind of like stick it to the establishment that the the establishment even for horror films has certain you know formulas that they work with and certain kind of uh, a certain kind of like veneer they want to present themselves as and Walker never you know never you know went with the party line Walker always did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, if you look at the movies that he did, like Die Screaming, uh, The Flesh and Blood Show, um, Frightmare, of course, and then, of course, Schizo, House of Long Shadows. So there's a number of films that he did that, uh, that all they ostensibly did was just push the envelope in a specific direction. It was always about the gore, always about the violence, always about the things that we want to shy away with. And he, re- and he kind of like bucked the system by refusing to you know go with the demands for what critics had for his films. Have more exposition. Nope, I'm not. I'm deliberately not going to have. You know, I'm going to have less exposition because that's what you want from me. So he turned his, his cinematic eye into a way to kind of like give the middle finger, or you know, like like stick it up to the establishment, which is what kind of cemented him as like a horror legend. And saying like, you know, this is what it is, and this is the story I'm going to tell, and whatever you want is just, you know, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give you what I want to see, and that's the beauty of his films. Even though many people might not really dig them, sometimes the pacing's a little bit slow. Like in Frightmare, some of the pacing is glacially slow. But in regards to that, it was kind of like, well, you know, people were expecting something different. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it like this, which is why I thought he captured that kind of British, that British society kind of like, you know, I thought he captured that beautifully. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the way people interact with one another. It's kind of the way they, they and then throw this horror and gore into the middle of it and, you know, shake things up a little bit. So I thought that worked really, really well for himself, which is really, really interesting. It was in an interview that he did when he was asked if there was any like like deeper meanings, like maybe I'm reading into some of his like I'm reading into Frightmare some deeper stuff, um, some comment, you know, like some social commentary on the mental health system and how it kind of disregards his patients, and once it's kind of done with them, it just kind of kicks them back in society with no support systems. So, but it's really not. In his own words, he said, "There's no deeper meanings to his films." He just wanted to shoot, make movies and do what he wanted to do and maybe cause a little mischief, you know, while along the way. It's pretty much all he did. But it's fascinating to see because as much as he would say that, 
I honestly think you can't make a movie without there being a part of you in that, about the being a reflection of how you see the world. Because you're going to imprint on your art no matter what you're doing, because your art is you. It's an aspect of yourself. And I think that in his own way, I think Walker constantly saw things about the world that people too often, especially in kind of like, you know, proper English society or proper British society, I think he saw that people too often turn their back on it because you have the sense that if you don't really give it any attention or give it any energy, then the problem will eventually just go away or it'll work or somebody else will deal with it. Or maybe, you know, it's not as bad as we thought it was. So we're just going to ignore it and we're going to focus on focus on focus on more positive things. And I like that he was willing to stick his nose in that and push that boundary. So Frightmare is a way that he does that, and a number of his other films are. Frightmare wouldn't be like I would. There's a lot of people that say that Frightmare is Walker's most, you know, infamous film. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I think the the Flesh and Blood show, the one that kind of put him on the map, I think that one was a little bit more controversial, and I think is a a better example of his more raw intention uh, intentions. But Frightmare is not bad. Not a bad little film if you can get through the glacially slow part. Some of the pacing is pretty. You know, as we're as we're setting up, this interspersed moments for character development for, for, for character establishment that kind of spike up the energy. But you're going to get some moments like when everybody's hanging around in the older sister's apartment and they're all just talking about things it's like, huh? You know, it just kind of drags. But unfortunately, you know, that was the intention that I think that that was the I think it was all intentional. But Frightmare, nonetheless, is a, is a fascinating one. It's an interesting look, I think, kind of like under the covers, very similar to the movie Prey. And how the LGBTQ community was handled or kind of approached in the 70s, where that movie is said, you know, has like two, uh, has a lesbian couple that has essentially been forced from society. They're living in this little remote cabin in the middle of nowhere, all by themselves, kind of cut off from civilization. That's when the alien comes in. The, the alien, the, the alien who takes the shape of a very attractive looking man comes in and you know, upends everything. You know, turns it into a big weird lover, you know, like like lovers triangle, and it's all chaos. Because that was, you know, obviously that movie was a commentary on what, you know, on how the British or how the English handled the LGBTQ issue back in the seventies. I think Frightmare is not is kind of a commentary on the view of mental illness, especially in the seventies, the view on mental illness. Lock them away, shutter them up. Don't worry about them. If we eventually let them out when they're old and they can't do anything, then we, you know, they'll just they'll just fade away and we don't have to deal with it. And I think that Frightmare did a really good job. I think Walker did a really excellent job of showcasing that because that's truly kind of what's scary. What what drives the horror there is because not because you know this particular story happened, but because we are all all of us, you in the live chat, me, people who are in, people who love horror are intimately aware that these things are not far from reality. They're not, you know, people who are locked away for long periods of time, you know, and then they're just kicked back out onto the street, no support systems whatsoever, no help from anyone, no ability, and they wind up going right back to their old habits, whether they you know, are trying to go back to jail because it's more comfortable there, or they just don't know any better, or they're so mentally far gone that they, that they, they never got the help they needed. That's ostensibly what this is. So that's what it's the kind of real real life parallel there that Walker put his finger on, whether it was intentional or not. I think it was intentional, but that is the driving force of the horror right there, you know, because this is the extreme version of it, but it does happen, which is kind of freaky in that sense. So that kind of like thrumming energy behind it 
is is kind of like what hooked me and what what kept me, especially in the third act, especially in the final sequence. I would say in the last ten minutes, things ramp up and get really intense, which I which I really really dug. We got some new people here in the chat. Good to see everybody. I see Operation Free World is here. Good to see you. Operation says, hey, everyone, JL, I see you're running solo tonight. Best wishes to you. I will be popping in now when I can. Good to see you, Operation. Thanks so much for hanging out, bud. I do appreciate you being here. As well as Joshua Lee says, evening, everyone. Good to see you, Joshua Lee. Angel Rivera as well says, what up? What up, everybody? Hope you had a great Halloween. I hope you had a great Halloween. Absolutely. NANA for $6.66. The best kind of super chat. Says, Glacier Slow. Would that be a time period? According to our friend PhD Tony, it probably would be, you know, glacial, like glacial, you know, isostatic adjustment and shit. But yeah, glacially slow. That was kind of the, the in some areas of this film, definitely glacially slow. Thank you so much for the super chat, NANA. That means the world to us. Um, Sir Catherine says, there are definitely days when I am shocked that I'm allowed to walk freely among other humans. Hey, you and me both. We're the same boat. Large boat. Large boat. We're all in there, Chief. Large boat. Oh, let me see. I make sure I didn't miss anybody. Um, left-handed Jedi says, reminds me of the Monty Python skit where the British soldier had his leg stolen. Oh, bother. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Like, oh, goodness. It's like, it's like, it's like, you know, the, the Black Knight. Tis but a scratch. That's that whole thing. Exactly. Robert Bider, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. This is Afternoon Fiends. Good to see you, Robert. Entering Test 2. Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. Sarcasm says, this movie felt very much like a stage play. I can't help but wonder if there may be an uncut with more graphic kills. I haven't heard of an uncut version or like a director's cut. I haven't heard of one of those, but it's possible. You know, sometimes the the, the censors at the time probably would have put the kibosh big. T- the censors, you know, definitely put the kibosh on Walker when they felt they needed to. And likely there may have been some more extreme versions of the violence that we saw. Like, you know, the cutting off the top of, you know, like drilling into his head and shit like that. Um, like blood flying everywhere. I don't know, but uh, that would be cool to see that. That's, and that's the one thing I mentioned that in the trailer. It was one thing that got me is and there's a lot of like when we're talking about that British sensibility, like the whole, ooh, tis but a scratch. The idea that if if this crazy old lady has trapped you in a room and then she pulls out this flaming hot poker, you know, from the fireplace, and she's just ah from across the room, ee, and you're just like, why would you just stand there? Like, why? Look at all the things around you, all the pretty things in this room. This is an old lady, she's got a flaming hot poker. That's dangerous. But it's only really, it's, it's super dangerous if you, if you stand there and let her impale you with it. Like, ha! And then she beats you to death with a, with a, don't just stand there in shock and awe. Literally, beat her with something. I was looking around, I saw at least 10 things in that room that she could have picked up and bo- just straight bodied that old woman with. But no, you know, oh goodness, you know, ah, oh, proper lady doesn't fight back, I guess. I have no idea. It was very, very weird and very obvious because the timing is just like, ah, I'm running from across the room. Very Austin Powers. No. Running across the room with this flaming off poker. Ah, I stab you. And it was like, really? Really? Just, 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 just going to let her do it. Just going to, just going to, okay. I guess she was done. She was done. But yeah, but this is fantastic. Given that uh, this is one of the more infamous uh, Pete Walker films. I'm very curious. If you, if you out there, are familiar with director Pete with English director Pete Walker. Been around for forever. Huge list of films of his name, you know, in horror, sex exploitation. What do you think is the best Pete Walker horror film? Of all the stuff that he's ever done, what do you think is the quintessential Pete Walker horror film? Let us know down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgml.com what your favorite or what you think is the best Pete Walker horror film. Definitely want to know. Definitely. 
sarcasm, shall we? Let's hide him. Let's hide behind the chainsaws. And the killer's just like, really? Love that sequence. Uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was one. Don't make dumb decisions. Go with Geico. <laughs> oh, definitely. All right. Yeah, but Frightmare was definitely an odd one. It's definitely in, kind of an odd duck. It absolutely was. Let's go on to our second film tonight. Ah, I Okay, I promise you. I don't think I'm busting out. I don't think I need to bust out the TP-9000. I don't think I do. I really don't. I will just, just let's just dive into it. Let's just let's just dive into it. You know, we'll do we'll do that for the sake of the film. We'll figure out what we need. If if I need to go out to the shed and break up the TP nine thousand, I just might. I, I think I maybe I will. I have no idea. I don't think I do. But it just goes to show me bringing this up that I don't have a super high opinion of this film. Um, but let's dive into it because it's 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 intriguing yet kind of annoying. Released November sixth, twenty twenty one. This is a recent one, so I'll do my best not to spoil it. We have a moratorium on spoilers. I'll do my best not to spoil it. We have Father of Flies. Let's check out this trailer. Cue up the terror tube. All right. So that was the trailer for Father of Flies. And thank you so much. Raven Dark Star, I will check my email. I haven't gotten, I don't think I've gotten anything. Let me check. I'll have to check here in a minute. But that was the trailer for Father of Flies. Uh, directed uh, by directed and written by Ben Charles Edwards and Nadia Doherty, and starring Camilla Rutherford, Keaton Tetlow, Nicholas Tucci, um, Paige Ruth, Sandra Andreas, Davi Santos, and Colleen Heidemann and Malik Ibis. Um, the film. I want to make sure I don't uh, make sure I don't miss. Yes, okay, yeah. So the film follows a uh, this fa- follows a family that's kind of living out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, looks like very much living out in the sticks. Um, uh, where the mother is no, where the uh, biological mother is no longer a part of the family. A new, a uh, new woman has moved in as a girlfriend to the dad. And, uh, after she moves in some increasingly disturbing supernatural events start occurring around the house and the, uh, the son starts trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And if the, these, you know, terrifying events are somehow linked to the new woman in his father's life, um, without giving away too much. The film is, uh, I think that would actually give, give away a little bit too much. The the intriguing, okay, so the intriguingness of the movie is that there are a lot of, like, like okay, to give examples, Sarcasm says you can safely skip the first hour of this movie and miss nothing. The, the reason that is, the reason that happens is because there are many, many strengths in this movie. A lot of really, really good things. As far as a shooting location, you cannot do better. I love winter locations. I love what winter does for an atmosphere. I love the idea of like snow, snowstorms, you know, steel gray skies. Um, I love what it does, what it says, what it says about the characters, what it says about the environment, what it conveys. It's, I just, it's just a personal favorite of mine. There's so much that you can use in such an environment where everything is forced to be inside, where people are forced into close proximity with one another, where outside people really don't want to be there. They want to get out of as quick as possible. You get the kind of like island in the storm kind of sense where the conflict then arises from people being in such close proximity. I love that it drives the how, how just a winter, like very much like you think of a movie like The Lodge, a supernatural horror film like The Lodge or a psychological horror film like The Lodge how the the winter conditions outside drove that narrative. This film ostensibly has the same kind of atmosphere and should have been able to do that, but unfortunately never capitalized on it. From a visual perspective, it's wonderful. It's absolutely beautifully shot. The sound, the lighting, the foley, the editing, the pacing, all of it is really solid. 
very, very strong strengths, but unfortunately, they never fully capitalize on all these things that they have working for them. They never fully make use of all of them. Some of them are utilized, you know, to kind of convey, it's kind of like a surface intentionality, but from a narrative perspective, we'd never really dive into them. Like, like, like I said, like to reference another movie like The Lodge, where the outside environment is as much a character as what's going on inside the lodge while the kids and the uh, the girlfriend are waiting for the dad to come home. So like the shining, the shining, thank you, left-handed Jedi Jedi. The shining is fantastic like that. So it, it sets that environment where the, the outside conditions are as much a character. Unfortunately, father flies doesn't really do that. Number two, the trailer in itself is very deceptive. You get the sense that there's almost like this deep, deep supernatural, almost ritualistic, maybe even like pagan or satanic sense going on that this new woman is coming in and she's maybe not even really human, not 100% sure, but the trailer kind of is definitely misdirection. It puts you in one direction and delivers you an entirely different story. That trailer was very high energy. The movie itself is kind of low energy. It's kind of a slow burn. And I felt, I don't know about you, if you watch the movie. I was kind of an, I, I both thought, I thought it was cheeky, kind of cheeky of the director to put that there, there's an old short that a lot of people are familiar with on the internet. It started out as a two sentence horror story. And then it was, it was developed into a short, like a little short horror film. And essentially what it is, is the kid goes to bed, says, daddy, there's something under, there's something under my bed. Dad says, there's nothing in your bed. So like, can you check? And he looks under the bed and the kid says, there's something in there, daddy, there's something in my bed. And then he, uh, and then that's the horror story. Well, they use that for a dream sequence in this film. And I thought that was just, that was just cheap. Yeah. Oh yeah. The best horror, horror beat in the trailer stolen from two line horror stories on Creepypasta. Absolutely. I was kind of, that was cheap and you kind of threw it away right there. Like, you know, we know you didn't write that. We know you just grabbed it and put it in the film to make like a freaky dream sequence and to kind of like attach things to what's really going on, the possible supernatural events. But you know, that kind of dropped the ball for me. There's a lot of things that are mishandled and a lot of things that are done well. The cinematography regarding the mother and how the, and the mother's behavior is fantastic once you realize what's actually going on. The cinematography of the old lady, you know, the sequences that were going on with her, with the, uh, I liked her character a lot and I wish they had done more with her. She was played by, um, make sure I get her name right. Um, yeah, Colleen Heideman. I thought Colleen Heideman did fantastic in that role. She's a longtime actress, been in a lot of stuff, and I thought she did extremely well, but they didn't utilize her to the effect that they should have. She's kind of tertiary to the plot and is just kind of there for you to like essentially kind of make an observation for the audience. But they never utilized such a fantastically, you know, it's such a fantastically intriguing character. They never utilized her that much. Camilla Rutherford, you know, kind of knocks it out of the park as the creepy mom kind of fulfilling the goodnight mommy aspect of this movie, but is never really given an opportunity to really explore with that. And whereas I think the the, the bulk of it, the strength of it lies in Keaton Tetlow, who's the place the, the little boy, Michael. And I thought he was fantastic. That kid knocked it out, you know, like knocked it out of the park. That guy was great. Um, and unfortunately though, he's offset by the end by, by unfortunately, and I feel so bad. Nicholas Tucci, um, would play the dad Richard in this one, and Nicholas Tucci uh, unfortunately passed away back in 2020 um, of a of a short bout of cancer that he you know kind of like dealt with on his own, but unfortunately passed away. If you don't know who Nicholas Tucci is, you might remember him as one of the scheming brothers in the slasher film Your Next, 
He was the boyfriend of like the goth chick and uh, Sharni Vincent, you know, her character wind up, wind up like killing him by sticking his head, sticking the blender on his head, like sticking the blender in his skull, like turning it on and, you know, uh, blending his brains um he was in that he, i mean he, he did a number of roles before unfortunately passed away i just don't think nicholas got enough to really work with on this one his character is very one note and all the and the bulk of everything is put on michael and camilla and a little bit on donna the sister donna but there's not any real meat there she's just kind of disgruntled and is just kind of there as a to create artificial controversy so so many good talents because if you look at their roles, Camilla Rutherford is a phenomenal actor. So is Paige Ruth and Keaton Tetlow. And Nicholas Tucci had some fantastic roles as well. But they just don't have enough meat on the bones to really run with their characters. They're kind of like one note, two note, get from point to beat, to beat, to beat, to beat. When Father of Flies had the opportunity to be such a, such a phenomenally deep film that examined the kind of ills and how to like, like how to put that, like where to put that in words. The kind of um, the ills of uh, parentage and adultery and and ultimately self destruction. How things that things that we that we put so much value that we value with so much importance in our lives can ultimately lead us to our ends. And how you know how the fight how the the fighting for what you feel you deserve, fighting for the things that you believe in, ultimately kind of ostracize the people around you, and they can if you become too blindsided by them. Just like the father is with his relationship with Camille, the father with the dissolution of his marriage to his previous, you know, to the to the bio mom before she you know, before she winds up doing doing what she does, and there was just so much potential in the film, which really got me. I was like, every opportunity. There were a couple of really bright and shining moments. If I, uh, I thought the dream sequence was well done, though it was ripped directly from you know directly from Reddit. It was yeah, it was ripped from Creepypasta. That was well done. It was well shot. I was like, oh, it's like, okay, saw where they were going, but they they did it well. Some of the jump scares were pretty solid. Some of them, yeah, you know, I was like, oh, that was well done. The use of lighting, like you know, light and shadow, the balance of light and shadow, and how this thing was color graded, fantastic. I loved the very minimalistic ending part with the television and the kid and the bed. And without giving too much away, I loved the minimalism of that, despite how much emotion they were conveying. The sequences with the television, with the clown on the TV that you saw in the trailer are especially fucking creepy. So I really enjoyed that. So there are some bright moments, some bright spots that are extremely well done, that go on, that, that play, because this is an extremely well shot film. It's very good looking. The problem is, is that, like Sir Kaza points out, they waste their potential. You have all these fantastic tools and you're doing the bare minimum with them. It's like It's like buying the premium of a of a major like you know it's like buying the premium of like you know Premiere Pro and then only using you know the basic like the the bare minimum tools cut paste copy you know whatever and then just not not taking full advantage of all the tools you have available to you which is unfortunately what they do here that's a problem both in the planning and in the script the script itself i feel was rather weak and could have conveyed these things a bit more you wind up with this kind of goodnight mommy vibe meets uh the others kind of sense which is really really strange the two you would think would go to would go together like gangbusters like like peanut butter and chocolate you know you think those two would work well it's like interesting you got this goodnight mommy sense you know like 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 what is she who is she what is she to us what's the relationship here and then this kind of like the others 
you know, vibe going on. It was kind of like, you know, like what is, you know, like, like what's on one side of the veil, what's on the other side of the veil. And I thought this would have real opportunity, like real, like, like strong opportunity, kind of like the lodge. I got, I got lodge feeling vibes from this, maybe because I watched it a few months ago, just, you know, kind of kicking off. I was like, Ooh, yo, you got this kind of like trapped in the house kind of thing, wintry thing, the dad and the mom. And, you know, the dad doesn't see the evil, but the kids do and what's going on here. And, and then, you know, it kind of takes a swing into kind of like, you know, Ari Aster territory and rips a couple of things off from much, much better films. And then just kind of like, lets it lie, which I thought was such an incredible freaking waste of, of everything they had going for it, of, of all the beautiful sound and the lighting and the atmosphere It's definitely an atmospheric film and the talent they had on screen. They could have gone better. I would have definitely spent, uh, I definitely would have spent more time on the script on this one. Hey, I would do you know, rewrites really when you have a, when you have the action, as a writer, when you have the action isolated to singular locations, where there is one location for action, and all you have is tertiary locations outside that people go to for respite, and then they come back for more conflict, when you have that, it's very, very important for people to be able to eat into one another, for your characters to eat into one another, because when you're living in close proximity for extended periods of time, your characters know a lot about you. Now, in this particular situation, it's possible that the that the the girlfriend knows more about the kids than they do, or it's possible they know more about her than than she thinks than she's aware of. And you can play into these. Not to mention that parents typically have more information than their kids do about certain in, intense subjects. You know, they have things that are going on in their lives. You know, and you can play that against one another. How a, a parent can try to be understanding while knowing what their child is not, trying to reconcile the child's emotions with what's go with, with with what is happening, but we never get that opportunity, especially between the daughter and the girlfriend. We just get people shutting doors in each other's faces, which is really obnoxious because this isn't fucking moonlighting. This is supposed to be a psychological horror film where people are trapped in the snow. So, as a writer, understand your characters. That's the issue right here. Is that. Is that is as beautiful as the film was, as wonderfully shot as it was, I can't I can't really say that Ben Charles Edwards really has a really had a sense of or Nadia Doherty, who was his co-writer, really had a sense of what their characters wanted, what they were doing, or what they were dealing with. And that's because in the wake of things like unlike movies like The Babadook, where you have grief as an underlying theme that's informing every action. Despite the fact that that should have that, that something like that should have been a note from the very stop, you know, start of the film, something like that should have been a note. It never is a note. It never is a note that this is a major issue, that this is a major thing that's informing decision, informing beliefs and informing structure. They never do that. So it's where it kind of drops the ball. It's it, the, the, the failure in this one, the failure to fire in this one is the script in and of itself. It could have definitely been stronger had more time been spent on it. And I think that if this movie were to be remade, I think it definitely could be. I think that Father of Flies could be could be redone and made a little bit more poignant and a little bit more shocking without necessarily leaning on stuff that other people have done. Edwards, the director Edwards, showed that he absolutely has a phenomenal sense for the for the creep fest, for the creep factor. He really does. There were many sequences that were really, really creepy. That, that worked really well. He's got a great sense for that as a director, but he just leaned a little too heavily on some things that other people have done in order to establish his environment, which, you know, maybe it's a rookie mistake. I'm not 100% sure. 
Um, ben Edwards is not a first-time director. He's done a number of things. He's produced a lot of stuff, so he's familiar with being on set and how to do these things. Um, he's got at least like 12 credits under his belt. Um, I think, what was it? Yeah, Father of Flies was one of the most recent, but he's got a number of other productions um, as a director. You know, what do you do? Uh, yeah, like a, a number, like, you know, Oh, it, it, for that kind of talent, for for that kind of talent, that kind of experience, there should have been more. Should have been more, and be be willing to take those risks. Be willing to take them because they're very, very important, especially when we're telling a story as complex and deep as Father's uh, Father of Flies should have been. Sarcasm says, "I think it would have been much better if they had all been housebound together instead of sending the characters out to do whatever." Drew, that might have worked as well. Good to see you, Extra J. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. I do appreciate you being here. Uh, you rock. Let me see. Raven Dark says, on its 10-minute walk to my doctor's... Oh, I know you are. So Raven Dark starts handling stuff there. And I said, I promise. I promise I'll check my email. I really do. Uh, Tesla Radio, good to see you. It says, like using high-test gas for a smart car. Exactly. You know? And good to see you, Tesla. Thanks so much for hanging out. Um, let me see. Make sure I didn't miss anybody. Oh, Sir Kev says, jail stealing out of my brain again. It's what I do. I drink your milkshake. I absolutely do. But the one thing I want to ask the audience, the one thing that I felt really, really worked in Father of Flies, which should have worked in Father of Flies' uh, film, in the, in the film Father of Flies, was the environment, was the winter environment. Winter is such a phenomenal environment, especially to cast horror. Cold, dead, the themes are just there, you know, building around like a blizzard, getting lost in a blizzard, wide outs, the terrifying nature of it, you know, wanting to be indoors and away from the scary cold, you know, uh, it just makes for fantastic horror. But I want to know what you all out there, especially the live chat, you listening at the top of the week, what do you think has been the best horror film set during winter? The best horror film, or maybe your favorite. But what do you think is your favorite or the best horror film set during winter? Could be The Shining. We mentioned that earlier. Could be a movie like The Lodge. Good little psychological horror where, you know, people get, you know, like stir crazy, start, you know, feeding off each other. Um, but I want to know. Let us know down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com or here in the live chat what you think was your favorite or the best winter set horror film. Definitely let us know. I want to hear. Let me see what we got here. Um, Travis Brown brings up The Thing, 1982. Absolutely. The Thing is fantastic. Was, uh, McCready makes the uh, has the line like what the beer is, is like uh like you know like two gallons like you know, a few weeks bro like the two like two goddamn weeks for winter or something like that. So yeah, Travis Brown makes that it's an excellent choice. Uh, Angel Rivera brings up The Shining, fantastic. So does Strange Like Seven Ninety, The Shining, Sherry Tilly, The Shining. Tesla Radio says not Jack Frost, very nice. I like it. Joshua Lee brings up Misery, very nice. Yes, Misery, trapped by the cold with a psycho. Very, very good. Classic Stephen King. Left-Handed Jedi brings up The Thing. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, let me see. Genova 28 says Dreamcatcher. Ooh, very good. Yes, right. Out there in the cold. That's right. Uh, the Sarcasm brings up The Thing. Yep, very good. Angel Rivera says, does Ernest save Christmas count? Very nice. I love it. Of course it does. It always counts. Ernest movies always count. They always count. There's a lot of them out there, but definitely let us know down in the comments below. Your favorite or what you think is the best winter set horror film. Robert Biters is Frozen. Actually, that is a winter set horror film about the three kids, about the three teenagers who stuck on the uh, the uh, chairlift um, at the ski resort on Friday, and then everybody leaves, and then they're stuck up there, and they can't get down. That was a winter set horror film. Aha! I got you. I got you, sir. You were trying to do the Disney film. Extra J says, I like the lighthouse. Looks like winter, some horror aspects. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Ski lift, chair lift, ski lift, chair. It was a chair lift. Ski lift, whatever. Come on, don't kill me. Yo, do the strange like 790. Ooh, snow beast, left handed Jedi. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Rubber biters is shining for me. Excellent. Well, yep, there's a lot of good options out there. Definitely let us know down in the comments below or weekendhorror at gmail.com. Let's move on to our third selection, the one that I was actually really excited to talk about because I really love this one. This is good stuff. So, released uh, November 9th, 1990. We have the sequel, Child's Play 2. Let's check out this trailer. Cue up the terror tube. All right. That was the trailer for Child's Play 2. Uh, oh, before I dive into this, I want to say something. I want to say something. Angel Rivera, thank you very, very much. Angel Rivera puts up the comment. I like the effect of changing the channels you had last week. That was cool. So I did so for those who are not aware and for those who are listening and don't watch the live show. Last week, I did a little something different with the trailers. Is that I was it's supposed to be the terror tube. So like, it's like it's all it's all horror on the television. And so I set it up so it looked like it was kind of like changing channels from horror movie to horror movie to horror movie, and then the trailer plays. So I put in a channel changing effect. It's just kind of like throw it in there. Just to kind of spice things up a little bit. I was like, I want to try something new. I do. And Angel Rivera, you are the first person to say anything about that anything at all you're the first person to point it out first person to comment it's a positive comment thank you very very much i i because I, I just did it i didn't want to spoil it i don't want to tell anybody i just wanted to do it and see what people thought see how people reacted you are the first person to say anything because nobody said anything in between then and now no comments no emails eugene didn't even say shit and he was on the show with me nobody said anything because nobody said anything, I didn't do it this time. I was like, okay, I guess nobody dug it because nobody pointed it out. They're just kind of like, eh, something he did. And so, yeah, I, I didn't do it this week because I thought that nobody it was like, nobody cared, nobody noticed, or yeah, I was like, eh, whatever. And so, but thank you, Angel Rivera, for pointing it out, for noticing. I appreciate that very much. I feel, oh, I feel validated. I feel so validated. Thank you very much, Angel Rivera. I do appreciate that. I'm glad that you liked it. Um, I can definitely do it again. Um, I was thinking about doing like maybe a maybe like a poll. Did you like that change? But nobody commented. Even when it was playing in the episode, like in the live chat, nobody said anything. You know, I think there were maybe a couple of laughs. I'm not sure, but I, I couldn't tell. But it seemed like nobody noticed or like nobody really cared. So I was like, eh, it was just something new to try. I, I didn't take offense. I was like, ah, I guess people just really dig that. So I just went back to the standard. So I appreciate that very much, Andrew Rivera. Not to throw anybody else in the live chat under the bus. Not to throw anybody under the bus. It was a simple, small little change. I didn't know if everybody would notice or anybody would try to, like, would, would even really care. I just, I didn't hear anything about it. So I figured nobody, nobody either, either didn't mind. They didn't, you know, it was like, whatever. Nobody said anything. So I was like, eh, I just won't do it this week. And now I see somebody has said something. So I guess... I can do it again. I can cut you know next week's trailers and put the little channel change little effects in there to you know kind of liven up and spirit it up. Because I always find little like little tiny ones from different movies. Be like ah, you know, I can try to like you know you know. So people was like oh cool, they remember that film. So I appreciate that very much, Angel Rivera. Thank you so much for uh, for that feedback. Um, Strange like seven says oh oh so, saw the oh yeah and then uh, Travis Brown says the intro of Chucky being reassembled was great to watch for any kids who love toys. Absolutely, absolutely was. Uh, Durif is a mad genius. He absolutely is. 
Um, Just Raider says it was a good effect. Oh, thank you very much. Um, let me see. All, all of your talent. We, oh, we're <laughs> thank you so much, Casey Cooper. Says we're just always in awe of your talent. We expect greatness. Oh, wow. Well, I'll try to live up to that. Thank you so much, Casey Cooper. I appreciate it, bud. You rock. Rave Dark says, I loved it, JL. I thought it was last week and the week before. Just did it last week. Yeah. Josh Lee says, I liked it too. Definitely added to the spooky factor. Very cool. Robert Bider says, I don't even notice when my wife gets a haircut. How the hell is he going to notice like tiny two-second clips from horror films before every trailer? Good point, Robert Bider. I appreciate that. Uh, Travis Brown says, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of change. I'm not a big fan of the change. I get, I get that. Absolutely. That feedback helps. That feedback really, really helps. So, and I was, I may have even tried to add a little something new, like maybe a terror tube, like something on it. I don't know. Try to like liven it up a little bit. So it's a little bit more visually stimulating, but you know, I appreciate the, all the, the, all this feedback is fantastic. I do appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. Sarcasm says, I was oblivious. Sorry, JL. It's all good sarcasm. Don't even worry about it. Sherry Till says, I haven't been here, but you are here now. That's the key, Sherry. That is the key. So I, I do appreciate all of the uh, the feedback on that. I'm glad that somebody, I'm glad that people noticed. I'm glad that people, some people dug it. Um, it's just trying to wait to try to liven up so it's not the exact same thing every single week, which is sometimes a problem when you're doing live shows. It's doing the exact same shit over and over and over again. Aaron Reese, good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out and keeping a, uh, Keeping a hand on the uh, live chat. I think he said something earlier. I totally missed it. Oh, I totally did. I saw you said something, Aaron. I completely missed it. So I apologize. Extra J says, I like the channel changing clips. Very cool. Ivy Gitch says, I had liked it too and was missing it tonight, but I don't quite know I, qu I don't quite know how to say. Well, you just did. I do appreciate that. So I see, I, like a lot of people dug it. I like that. Joshua Lee says, reminds me of the, of the times we had to change the channel on those TVs by rotating the dials. Yes! Yes, that was exactly what I was trying to go for. To, 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 yeah, that's exactly what I was trying. Like, I was trying to recapture, kind of like that time from all, from all of us. You know that this show is filled by, Gen, is, is like fueled by Gen X rage. Gen X rage and Gen X angst. It absolutely is. And these were the movies that informed us as children. These are what we grew up with. Like, you know, like, what, you know, trying to figure out what channel we want to be on until we all just fucking settled on channel U. You know, that's what we did. So I remember it, you remember it, and I was trying to kind of recapture that magic. So this fat feedback has been excellent. It's been fantastic. Thank you very, very much. Little short little segue there. So back to the movie at hand. The movie that we're, uh, oh, say Angel versus it took me two trailers to notice it since I missed the first trailer today. <laughs> but hey, you know, I could definitely do it again. Well, I'll have some fun with it. I will have some fun with it. I promise you. All right, back to the movie that we are talking about at hand. That's true. Largely a Gen X chat as well. Uh, Child's Play 2. God, I love this fucking sequel. This is such a this is such a damn good movie. Um, direct sequel to the original Child's Play, written uh, by oh sorry, directed by John Lafia and written by Don Mancini, uh, based on characters created by Don Mancini. Don Mancini is the the mad genius behind everything Chucky, starring Alex Vincent, who returns from the first film, Jenny uh, uh, Jenny Agutter, Garrett Graham, Christina Elise, Grace Zabriskie, and of course the amazing, inimitable, legendary Brad Dourif. Oh uh, man, I missed the opportunity to get his to get his autograph last time I last time I was in Texas when I was a Texas Frightmare. I, I had the opportunity. There was an opportunity to get him and his daughter Fiona, and I wanted so bad. I was I wanted to get Brad. I got Lance Henriksen because I was like I got to get Lance, but I need to get Brad Dourif's autograph. I really want to meet Brad Dourif. Just you know, like you know, get to meet him and just talk to him for a moment. I'm afraid that I would kind of like you know fanboy out with Fiona. Because I, you know, I just like love her to death. Ever since, you know, like in everything she's done, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. God, she was brilliant. 
But uh, but yeah, I hope to get his autograph one day because I need it. I need a Chucky on the wall. I do. I need a Chucky on the wall. So this film, the sequel, picks up immediately after the events of Child's Play One. Well, after the events of Child's Play One of the first Child's Play, Andy has unfortunately been put into foster care, and his mother is not present because she's currently it's you know the, the, it's exposition that she's currently in a psych ward for claiming that the uh, that Chucky was alive. He is currently in foster care while his mother's dealing with the legal system and he's moving in, you know, pretty much, you know, stuck with a foster family. And unfortunately, Chucky did survive the events of the first film and, of course, is now back to bring, you know, to, you know, to try and find Andy and swap bodies so he can have a human body again. So this film does absolutely everything. Oh, yes. And as as Eugene would say, shit definitely gets real. Everything about this movie is fantastic. I would go to say that as far as sequels go, it's one of the best sequels to a horror franchise out there. The number two definitely, you know, like jumped over the first one. The first one, while scary, was more, uh, it, the, the pacing was a little bit slower. Obviously, because you have a lot of characters you have to establish. You have to establish Charles Lee Ray. You have to establish all of the fucking voodoo shit that was all around him. Establish Annie, establish his mom, their current living situation, the good guy doll. You know, Chris Sarandon coming in. All of that establishment takes time. And of course, you know, like all the, the, the magic and shit. And then of course the final sequence. There's a lot of establishing that kind of like drags until you finally get to like, you know, the meat of the horror, which is fantastic. Original Child's Play is great. This one, we already know that shit. So we can get right into it. So we get right into the bloodletting, right into the kills. And there was some brilliant, and the, the brilliance of this one, the brilliance of this is... The little things. There was the little things that they got right. So there were some things that they that the uh, that Mancini learned in the in making the first film uh, during the first film that they made sure that they did not deal with, that they did not uh, the same mistakes or the same little like kind of hiccups they did not run into on the on the on this particular film. Number one was the voice. One thing the Child's Play franchise has always put forward is the animatronics and the puppetry of the Chucky doll. That doll has always been fantastic, and Mancini has always ensured that the money goes into doing the doll as as good as possible to make those effects, because no one's going to believe the killer doll movie if the doll doesn't look good. If it doesn't look good, if it doesn't act right, if it's fucking silly as shit, you're going to wind up with a movie like fucking Dolly Dearest or like Dolls, where the dolls are like, really? I'm supposed to take that seriously? It looks like, you know, or you don't. Mancini was always really solid. He did not want to stray into Puppet Master territory. He wanted to make this shit really fucking scary, which is why many of the sequences in the first Child's Play were done with forced perspective and utilized a uh, utilized a uh, a dwarf in the child's in the in the Chucky getup in order to get that 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 humanistic movement, which made it really creepy juxtaposed against like picking up the doll and it's just a doll but no it moves like a human being it moves like a like a living entity especially that stalking moment at the end that's you know i love that one of what that was scary back in 88 so the focus on the doll was very very important for child's play too you can see all of the improvements they made between the first film and the second one you can see uh the doll the structure of it is better it the it functions better animatronically and the key point was brad Dourif was actually given the script ahead of time and he recorded all of his lines in advance of the film, which was a brilliant decision to make because instead of Dorif trying to match the lip, trying to do the voice and match lip flap, they were able to animate the doll, 
the doll's lip flap to match Brad Dourif's words, which is why that worked so exceptionally well. It was a little bit more expensive, you know? It was a little bit more expensive than doing it the other way, than animating the doll first and then matching the lip flap. Trying to, making sure you're like in there, the time-consuming necessity to animate the doll's mouth and the eyes and all of the, and all of the expressions to match what Brad Dourif is conveying in his voice, that's more time-intensive. takes a lot more effort and a lot more people, but it pays off because the doll is fucking phenomenal. Every aspect of that works so well, especially in the one, the one big, the, the classroom sequence where the abusive teacher finally gets her come up with come up and win. And it's the only, one of the, for the first time ever that we've actually felt camaraderie. That's what I also love about the sequel is that this is the first time we ever feel camaraderie with, with the, with the character of Chucky, because you have this teacher who is abusing Andy. Andy's the traumatized little boy that we all believe is the audience. The teacher doesn't believe him. And she like locks him in the closet and she's like, you know, mean and abusive and just talks trash to him. And then Chucky like you know, straight up smokes her ass with a freaking yardstick. I thought that was hilarious and one of the better deaths. And then just like when he comes out of the closet, like slapping that shit, he's like, "You've been very naughty, Mrs. Kettery." And I was like, "I fucking love that sequence." So everything about this one, they focus on all the right things. A second thing was the scoring. The scoring in Child's Play Two was the first time that it was the first time in the first film. Everything was electronic. Everything was digital. Or sorry, everything was was electronic. Everything was synthesized. In the sequel, there's a fast, fascinating little bit of a story here. It sets a, a much more, I would say, vibrant tone and much more energetic tone, just like you would have in many action films because, like in 1990, Child's Play 2 also suffered from sequelitis. Everything has to be bigger, more violent, more, you know, more blood, more, more deaths, more bodies, more, more comedy. It has to be up. Everything has to be up. If you're going to be an action film, more explosions. It's got to be more intense. Look at Lethal Weapon to Lethal Weapon 2. Look at, you know, Predator to Predator 2. This is what it was. It was the 90s. So you look at this one, Child's Play to Child's Play 2, they ramp up everything. And part of that, one of the most important things is scoring. Because in the first Child's Play, everything was synthesized, whereas in Child's Play 2, everything was orchestral. So the, that, And that's what kicked off. Don Mancini stuck with orchestral compositions throughout the entire franchise going into the TV shows today. The key thing about that scoring is that it plays such a ph phenomenal role in developing in basically allowing the audience to connect emotionally with what's going on in the scene, which I think just works better than, than synthesized music does. And the interesting story there is that the guy that they hired, if I want to see if I can remember his name, was really, was really, really fascinating. Um, uh, what was the dude? Yes. Um, Graham, uh, was it Graham Ravel? I think his name was Graham Ravel. Uh, was really... Oh shit! I, I totally miss it. I totally like because what's fascinating about it is that the composer for this film actually lied in order to get the job. He told because the only thing he had worked on, the composer had worked on, was uh was was the Australian horror film, with the Australian psychological horror film Dead Calm with Nicole Kidman and uh, Billy Zane. So he'd worked on Dead Calm, but he'd never done an actual orchestral you know, an orchestral uh, composition before, but he lied and he told them that he did. And they agreed. It was like, okay, great. Uh, come on in. And yeah, and managed to knock it out. And you know, so, so that's how he got in. And, you know, changed the entire tone of the franchise going forward with what he was able to put together, which is just fucking brilliant. You know, take a chance. You know what you're worth. Go after it. That was just really, really fantastic. So, so many little things that came along 
and some smart decisions as well. The really, really smart things I felt were cutting certain uh, sequences that really didn't need to be in there. Uh, like, you know, that that a drove that, that if, if they'd been included would have either made the film too maudlin or would have driven it too far into camp, which I think is what the problem was, which I think is why they dropped it. They wanted this to be like legit fucking horror. And so like, I would say before, like they, they started sliding into camp in three and they went full bore with Bride of Chucky. And two, they wanted to really maintain the, they, they wanted to maintain higher octane energy, ramp up the energy, but the legitimate horror of the, of the first film, which I thought was great. The whole sequence when when uh, when um, Andy and Kyle are running through the uh, running through the warehouse and all the good guy dolls was fucking brilliantly thought out, and of course lends us to what's going on currently right now in you know the the series. So these are the little things. These were the little things that were so important that Mancini was brilliant in making sure that this sequel popped off the way it was supposed to. And unfortunately, a little bit of that genius was lost in three because I felt like the script was kind of like, you know, what? Well, well, we we told the story with Andy. Now Andy's kind of grown up, and what do we do now? So it was kind of like we're kind of painting ourselves into a corner. So what what else can we do? Go full camp with Bride of Chucky, you know, and then Seed of Chucky, and so on and so forth. So, but I love these two as, and especially you could say it as an ending, kind of like an ambiguous. If the, if the franchise ended after two, that would have been great. It would have ended ambiguously, you know, like he melts and then in the face gets away and he's like, oh, he's still alive. Uh, who knows? But I really, really dug this particular one because it's such a beautiful ramp up from the first film. All the little things that were problematic or or, or created problems for the first film were all shored up. Mancini was firing all, on all cylinders. Brad Dorf was fantastic. He really, once he did, because he'd already, he's established, he, he knew Chucky at this point. He knew the character, didn't have to find it. And he dropped right into it. And of course, it's a sequel. So you're not going to get that kind of, you know, burn. You know, even though I don't think Brad Dourif's ever, you know, has gotten burned out on Chucky. He's been doing it for so long. I think he loves the character. But you can tell there's a little bit of a drip. Maybe it's age. There's a little bit of a drop in the overall energy in the recent stuff, as opposed to, yeah, you know, I would say Child's Play through uh, Curse or maybe even Cult. So where the energy starts to kind of drop off a little bit. They need to bring in Tiffany and a number of other characters to kind of like keep things going. But in one, two, and three, I'd say Brad Dourif did his you know, did fantastic work. In two, especially because the script is fantastic. The acting is great. Beautiful moments. I love the moment when he trips through. He's like, how's it hanging, Phil? That shit was fucking brilliant. It's like, it's like for this moment, you know, we're going to talk man to man. It's like, how's it hanging, Phil? And then, and then he killed dry, you know, breaks his neck. Love these, you know, love these moments. I, I really, really do. So it's really fantastic shit. Uh, Sir Cap says the third was totally trauma level camp. Absolutely, I would agree with that. A lot of love for Dead Calm in the in the uh, live chat I see. But Child's Play too. If you have not seen it, definitely check that one out. You can watch it back to back with the first Child's Play and get a really fantastic story. Um, I, you know, everything about it is just is just wonderful, and I fucking love Alex Vincent, who has had this kind of renaissance coming back in Cult of Chucky and Curse of uh, Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky. I love that Alex is coming back to play the role of Andy again as the grown-up adult Andy. I love that they've made that Mancini has maintained that continuity. It's just really brilliant shit. So, you know, it's uh, this one is definitely one of the not to miss ones because you can see all the things that they got right that they definitely could have fucked up if they tried to rush it, but they made smart decisions and delivered a really fantastic sequel. Especially if you're a, if you're a Chucky fan, absolutely. So my curiosity is this because tonally. 
I would say not so much, no, oh, hit my mic, not so much fundamentally because they're both killer doll films, but tonally, two completely different movies. Child's Play, Child's Play 2. Child's Play definitely have a lot of exposition building of character, but you have the lead up into like seeing the doll in action. Like what the hell is going on? Like seeing the real horror, the, the flip around head. Hi, I'm Chuck, you want to play? You know, and you know, I think it was, um, I'm losing my mind here. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, freaking um, uh, Catherine Hicks knocking out of the park. Chris Sarandon coming in. You know, you have fantastic characters. But I'm very, very curious. Like I said, totally different. Child's Play 2. Action's up. Violence is up. Bodies are up. Introducing the character of uh, the uh, this, the, uh, this, the uh, foster sister of um, Alex. You know, all kinds of good shit. But which one did you prefer? Which one did you like more? The first Child's Play? Or the second child's play. Both of them have their pros. There's a few, and they have their cons as well, but both of them are excellent fucking movies. I'm just kind of curious what you thought was the favorite. Let me know down in the comments below or weekendhorror at gmail.com or here in the live chat. Which you prefer, child's play or child's play two? Which is your favorite of the two? Definitely curious as to, uh, as to what people think. Left handed Jedi says two. Says child's play two. Fantastic. Travis Brown says the first child's play. Ooh, got a little suspense, a little bit of thriller in there. Left hand Jedi likes the action, likes the likes the likes, you know, like the ramp up. Tesla Radio says two is still on top for me. Fantastic. Strange like 790 says child's play one. 50-50 here. I'm loving it. Sir Chasm says, tough call. I say double feature. Fuck yeah. Both of them together. Edited together into one four-hour film. Definitely. Fantastic shit. Love it. Definitely let us know. I'm very curious what, to hear what people think about this. Uh, Aaron Reese says, Child's Play 1. It still has a better suspense level in regards to the overall plot. Ah, Ivy Gentry says 2. Raven Darkshow says, as I laugh my ass off with 1, 2 was okay. Case Cooper says, double feature for sure. Extra Jace is going with 1, but it's been a long time since I've seen them. Definitely go check that out. I'm going to go back and watch. You're watching, probably watching the Discord. Sony News was watching the Discord. Genova 28 says, number 1. See, number one's got that got, got those scary vibes, not to mention that stalking sequence at the end when he's all like fucking burnt up, he's all charred, and he's like, I'm gonna kill you. It's like that shit was fucking creepy. That was creepy as fuck. Person in the costume by there. I just saw some people weren't aware of that. Yeah, person in the costume in that one. Really great shit. Left handed Jedi says the puppet master series popped into my head. Gotta love some full moon, man. Gotta love some full moon. Some Charles Band shit. Especially that first one. First one, the stop motion in that I thought was fantastic. Stop motion in the first Puppet Master was great. Absolutely was. All right. Let's dive into our to our last film for the night. And this is where things are going to get weird. I hope a lot of you, I hope many of you watch this movie. I really do. Um, it's classified as horror. Uh, but there may be some disagreement on that. But nonetheless, this movie released... November 10th, 1989, and it's the movie Communion. Let's check out this trailer. All right, that was the trailer for Communion. Man, we've got some things to say about this one. So, a uh, science fiction horror film based on the book of the same name, uh, directed by Philip Mora and written by Whitley Stryber, uh, based on Communion by Whitley Stryber. Um, starring the legendary, of course, Christopher Walken, uh, the delectable and you know, incredibly talented Lindsay Krauss, Francis Sternhagen, Terry, uh, Terry Hanauer, Andreas Katsoulis, and Joel Carson. A number of character act actors you'd recognize in this one. Um, I, yeah, I, one thing I'll say, I was struck. I'm loving Lindsay, like Lindsay Krauss. I've loved her, you know, 
I thought you know, loved her in the arrival, loved her in arrival, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer season three, loved her in that. Man, I love her with long hair. I really do. I love her with long hair. It kind of blew my mind because I've only seen her with short hair. That's where, where her character is. But nonetheless, the film follows uh, the Stryber family as the dad, um, Whitley, is overcome by, you know, nightmares and visions of something happening to him. And his son is also being affected. And it turns out that he is, you know, having close encounters with these alien entities that are coming to him and, you know, whatever, experimenting on him, doing stuff to him. And then he realizes that they're not malevolent. And it's about the movies about him kind of coming to terms with this and how it's always been a part of his life and how it will be a part of his son's life, just as it was a part of his father's life and how he kind of like acknowledges this and just simply acquiesces to it and accepts it. It's, you know, it's probing time. It's definitely probing time. They definitely do some hardcore probing in this one that they make a big sequence of this. So for those who are not familiar We've talked about him before, Whitley Stryber. Whitley Stryber, prolific author, and we have talked about two of his uh, two of the movies adapted from his works, the the uh, Wolfen and the Hunger. So the uh, Wolfen, starring um, uh, oh god damn it, what the hell was his name? Uh, played Adama in Battlestar Galactica. Oh, I'm freaking, I'm so annoyed. Um. Albert Finney was in it. Uh, son of a bitch. I mean, that's going to bug me. Edward James Olmos. Thank you very much. Yeah, Edward James Olmos. But he uh, he wrote The Wolfen, uh, which the movie uh, which the movie Wolfen was adapted from. He wrote The Hunger. That was a David Bowie film, David Bowie vampire film. So a prolific writer. Excellent, fantastic writer. Really, really you know, great stuff. And this movie is based upon his book, which he claims happened to him. So it's, it, you know... It could be so, but the problem is, unlike uh, a fire in the sky kind of sequence, this one gets really, really weird. Um, it's hard for me. Okay, this movie's been out for like a long time since 1989, so I don't feel too bad in kind of spoiling this bad boy. This film, uh, Lauren, Lauren Green, Roots Wrong Adama, nice Raven Dark Star. Um, Obvi- okay, so this is uh, something really, really interesting here. I'm trying to find the words on this. Raven Darkstar says, this is interesting. Raven Darkstar says, I did not like walking in this one, which is fascinating because the critics across the board and a lot of people who watch this movie are pretty much like love walking in this film. I loved walking in this film. Walken's chemistry with Lindsey Krauss, Walken's chemistry with, uh, with uh, the uh, kid who plays his son with Andreas Katsoulis. His chemistry with all the other characters is fantastic. You know, with Frances Sternhagen, legendary character actress herself. She was in The Mist. You might remember her as the, as the old lady in The Mist. Um, I, I really liked Christopher Walken in this one. You know, I thought there was, I thought it was really, really fascinating. I really do. I thought it was fascinating to start off with. But then the movie, for some reason, in the second act, takes a really, really absurd and weird turn. There's a lot of very strange like uh cinematic choices that are being made and how things are shot or framed and it feels like about the second act christopher walken was just allowed to kind of cut loose you know it's kind of like ah, i'm gonna be you know christopher walken and do the thing and especially the sequence when he's remembering what went on in the ship and when he's when he's on the ship and the little like blue you know like goblin looking things and the you know the dancey you know aliens 
don't actually watch this thing for the special effects because I'm sorry to say they look fucking ridiculous. They really do. They look kind of like, they look very silly. This is not aged well at all. But Christopher Walken has. Everything you see in this, in this OG Walken performance, is stuff that, that you're like, oh, wow. You can see kind of like in its earliest phases. This is not like, you know, the Dead Zone, really deep character development. No, this is just Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken. You know, like everything, like the, the dances, you know, the way he talks, his inflections, you know, you know, all the, the the weird stuff. It's very, very strange. But I will say in this bizarre outing, Walken does an exceptionally good job. I really enjoyed it. I thought he him he alone saved the movie. I really did. Darwin Rave Dark says, JL, read the book and you'll know why I say that I think Walken went to uh, went too over the top. Maybe he did, but maybe he needed to. I haven't read Communion. I haven't myself. Okay. But maybe he did. Maybe he did go over the top, but maybe he had to go over the top in order to save this movie. From all reports about the movie is that, so it was, it was reported during production that some members on the crew would crack jokes at Stryber's experience about the autobiographical aspects of the movie, of the story. Stryber went on to simply comment that, you know, when you're making movies, there's good people and there's bad people. You know, there, there's nice people and there's jerks. We had the, the classic mix of those people on this set. And obviously, there's some very, very funny aspects to this movie. There's some there's the, the, the silly aspects, especially when you find out that it's based on a book and based on a guy who claims that these things actually happened to him, based on Stryber's claims that these things actually happened to him. Sure. Yeah, and and uh, um, what was it? Uh, somebody mentioned that Tony Regime mentioned it definitely gave Stryber's writing a career writing career a reboot. It did. It absolutely did. Sarcasm says Watkins' acting was phenomenal, but the character he made uh, he was made to play was just completely bland and unlikable. Um, exactly. There's it's that, that's why it's all about. It, it was about Christopher Walken because the character of Whitley Stryber is just not that engaging. You know, there's nothing really there. Christopher Walken. Playing Whitley Stryber, what made that made that thing salvageable is what made that work. I love the dynamics, the family dynamics, the the the, the father son, the the husband wife, the the writer against the world kind of aspect. I loved it. I, Christopher Walken as a writer, just him. These were my favorite moments of the movie. It wasn't even the shit with the fucking aliens. My favorite moments of the movie were just Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken sitting in his office with writers sitting in his office with writers block trying to find the you know the energy. That shit was fucking great. And I do a terrible walk-in impression, but that shit was fun. I liked all the... That was that was the fucked up thing. The best thing about this was Christopher Walken just living life. Being a dad, going to a party, being with, you know, like go, going up to the cabin with friends. All that, that's, that's the best stuff. You know, it's just how he deals with this. And I like those moments. Those, those save, the, save the movie. Then you have all the weird... The weird alien visitation deals. It started out interesting until they showed too much. That was a problem. One thing that I love about there's 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 two ways to go about this. You can go about an alien film. You, I like that Tesla. I like that sequence. Po Post traumatic stress. It's a PTSD moment, and I really like that sequence. Both the son and the dad both react to that thing like that. And I thought that was great. That was a great PD. I was like, "Ooh, we're getting in kind of like a fire in the, a fire in the sky kind of vibe." You know, like going down that going down that road, or maybe even like a like a like a, a fourth kind. 
like the fourth kind, where it was focused on the characters, the PTSD, and the remembering, but not so much on the experiences themselves, just on the aftermath of the experiences. I thought that was great. I thought that worked extremely well. But then they went then they went and they went full blown, let's show everything. But that not let's show everything. I mean, there was some pretty controversial shit when they show, like, you know, walking on there and he's getting probed with the the, the fucking god damn the size of that thing, the fucking vacuum thing that they stick in him and you know, and then like, you know, like the the wandering around the ship and the, like, you know, like the kisses the blue goblin doctor thing and you know, dances around with the fucking, you know, like the, the floaty armed uh big eyed alien. Very weird stuff. It's very, it's, it's to at some point, somewhat off putting, somewhat, some point, oddly laughable. And, but there's also a, a strange psychological bent, like a psychological horror bent to it, where you don't know what part is like, you know, dream or reality or what part is, is like projected to him as kind of like that's all he can really see. Like, this is how I'm internalizing this because I can't, my brain can't internalize the reality of it. It's really hard to tell. And then in the third act, they make some really weird choices in trying to convey the character of Striver kind of acknowledging and accepting this is his new reality. And then it just kind of ends, which I thought was very odd. So, and thank you so much, Skeptic Dank, who says, for $4.99, thank you so much for the super chat, says, tell me your favorite horror movie and why, but in that glorious walk and approach, I really like the, the thing, you know? I like the guys together in in the cold, you know, and you know you don't know who's the thing. You don't know, you know it's crazy, and it could come out at any time, and you know they they're trying to survive, but who knows? Because they know the Norwegians, you know they 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 just they all died, and it could happen to them too, you know. But you know McCready, he's 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 a leader, you know. Hope he can he can get them out of there. <laughs> Fucking hell. Raven Darkness says, please stop. <laughs> I just had to keep going with it. I just wanted to keep going until someone told me to shut up. I really did. Oh, I just realized that that's going to go out on the air. That's That's going to fucking go out. People are going to hear that shit. That's awful. That That's awful. That's just terrible. You see what happens? Johnny, Eugene, Alex, Aaron. When you let me do a show alone, I wind up doing Walker impressions. Walking impressions, walking impressions. This is this is not good. This does not bode well for my future as an actor. Takes <laughs> as I came. <laughs> oh, Sir Cap says, end the misery. Just end it. Yes. Tesla Ray says I need to clip it and send it to Flat Derp. Oh, guy's gonna eat me alive. Uh Sherry Tilly says, plead, plead extreme exhaustion. I was exhausted. I was tired. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just terrible. Oh, it was awful. Oh, I got the I got the funky taste of that in my mouth. But it's fascinating. There's a lot of elements here. Now, obviously, 19 the 80s were offend, were were an intriguing time between the 60s and the 90s. Uh, aliens were kind of like alien visitation, alien abduction. Is these things were becoming ever since the Bar the the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Aliens were a thing, and so people were jumping on opportunities to tell these alien stories to convey these aliens interesting ways. They all really, other than you, know, you had movies and you had you had books out there, but really the only way for people, the um, American public or for the public, to really digest aliens on a, on a weekly basis would be like Star Trek, you know, or maybe even Star Wars at the time, you know, during the during the sixties and the seventies. But then all of a sudden. We started to be able to you know, do aliens all over the place in different ways to convey it. The problem with this one is that it's two different kind of movies. I think Stryber 
was not the, uh, I think, okay, I don't think Stryber should have been as involved in the production as he was. I think someone should have taken communion, adapted it, in, adapted it into a screenplay, uh, we, you know, maybe take some, some, some advice, but not him. Adapting one's own work is difficult because, especially when you write a novel, especially when it's autobiographical, you're going to have a lot of stuff in there that you feel is important, that needs to be told. Dancing, dancing with aliens. You're going to need that. You're going to want that shit, but you don't need it. That's not what the story is about. The story is about Whitley, not about, you know, him on the ship. Glances of aliens, moments, flashbacks, you know, creepy shit. That's good stuff. Flashes. The flashes of memory that they, they don't even really seem like they're, like they're, like they're yours. That's the important thing. Where I think Striver adapting his own shit, I think was the was the bad call. If someone had adapted Communion for the screen, and then they'd run with that with him as a consultant or as an executive producer, that would have been good. But I think the relationship here was just not great. Is I think is that that's what kind of uh, you know like dragged it down. Fortunately, Christopher Walken comes in and saves the fucking day. That and the, you know, lovely Lindsay Krauss. Oh, you should tell, I kind of crushed on her in the film. I really did. I've been crushing on her since the arrival. Since David Toohey's The Arrival. I thought she was, you know, I loved her in that. I love Lindsay Krauss. Oh, what, uh, something else. Uh, fucking Mr. Brooks. Loved her in Mr. Brooks as well as Demi Moore's boss. But I loved her in this one. I really did. I thought she was fantastic. You know? But yeah, ultimately, I think, unfortunately, it was Stryber himself that kind of like, that anchor, that kind of like was the anchor on this, on this one and dragged it. And kind of sunk it a little bit, you know. It it opened up to really, really bad reviews. Um, even Stryber himself panned it, which is which is you know that you know the outcome of it was even Stryber himself didn't like it, which is a damn shame because he didn't like the portrayal of him by Walken. He thought it was the non-factual portrayal of him, and unfortunately, if that if that I mean if obviously if Walken made all that shit up and that was not what Stryber is like. That movie, that we might not even be talking about it because that that would I think that movie would have been terrible. The only saving grace was Christopher Walken what he brought to that film to every aspect of that film. I just thought it got a little weird, you know, just like really strange at some point, just unnecessarily odd. Trying to be two different kinds of movies. Extra J says there was a robot chicken sketch in which Walken is having a heart attack and calls the hospital. The hospital staff all just end up talking about the guy doing a Walken impression while he dies. <laughs> I'm having a heart attack. Uh, Raven Darkstar says, "Jail, if anything, thank you for the laughs. Take my mind off the pain. You are very welcome, Raven Darkstar. And so says, Skeptic Dank came and Jail has a bad taste in his mouth. Clipped. Oh, that's just fucking, that's just great. Oh, this uh, this one's going to bite me in the ass. This one is going to bite my ass. It absolutely will. Clipped and will be shared. Yeah, that's just, that's awesome. That's, oh yeah, that's just great. That's just fan-fucking-tastic. Anyway, back to the movie. Back to the movie. Definitely one of the odder Stryber adaptations. I thought Wolfen was fantastic. I thought The Hunger was really good and done extremely well. But then again, Stryber did not have writing jobs on those films. This one was different because it was autobiographical. Obviously, he wanted to maintain what he felt was the integrity of the story and ultimately is what harmed, I think, it, in my eyes, what harmed the film. You know, just like, you know, Authors can write, you know, like when you have a, a novelist write a novel and they want to adapt it for a screenplay, even Stephen King has some real trouble with that. Now, I will say he's written, say, the teleplay he wrote for Storm of the Century, fantastic. Some of the adaptations he's worked on, great. The best ones, 
are not adapted to the screen by King. Because what the little finer details that are important to King are not necessarily important to the audience. And you got to, just like David Cronenberg, knew what was important, knew what was important in the dead zone, and he knew what he could work with and what could tell a very compelling story and, and maximize his use of Christopher Walken. That's the important thing. That's where you go with that. Know what you can work with because Stephen King did not adapt that. He did. He tried. And they, no, this is, no, this is not going to work. They bring so they, you know, separate it and then had a, had a stellar fucking film. Communion could have been that. Unfortunately, it was not. The question that I want to ask, and because this movie is so fucking weird, but it does talk about aliens. And aliens are fucking fantastic. They make for great horror fair. Many, many good horror movies about aliens. In fact, there is one called Aliens, if you haven't heard of it. It's fantastic. It came out in 86. So the question that I want to ask the audience, and this is just about kind of like, it was kind of Halloween inspired when I wrote this one. Uh, do you believe that aliens exist? I'm curious. And if so, are you afraid of them? Do you find them scary? Or are you more intrigued? I'm kind of curious. Because we've seen so many different kinds of aliens throughout throughout film, television, books, all kinds of different portrayals. Typically, they're just amalgamations of shit that we've seen here on Earth. We'd say, you know, like, you know, we can pretty much connect them to things that we know exist in reality. When impossibility is, they may not look at, look or act like anything we could possibly imagine. It could be beyond the scope of our reasoning, like, you know, like great old ones or shit. But who knows? I'm curious. Do you believe that aliens exist? And if so... Do you find them scary? Do, do, you know, are they are they unsettling? And maybe not just like you know double jaw, ah, you know, like aliens or predators, you know, but greys, reptilians, maybe the haptoids from fucking Arrival. Who knows? Maybe the uh, the 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 global warming motherfuckers from Charlie Sheen's The Arrival from David Dewey. Let me know. Very curious. Down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com. Aliens. Do you believe them? And what's your stance? What's your stance on aliens? Uh, once from outer space so definitely love to hear what you guys think all right i see i see a lot of yeses and a lot a lot of yeses followed by a lot of no's that's really really good a lot of yeses followed by a bunch of no's x-ray says i'd say yes and yes because they got us on tech if they figured out how to cross that space between us very good point very good point travis brown says ever since the x-files and et i believe in them and scared about them and half not scared about them ah half scared half scared half not scared Josh Lee says, yes, and I'm more intrigued. I think they are more similar to us, or they could be taking over our world reality. Ooh, the queen was a reptoid. Sherry Tilly says, yes, and not afraid. Sherry Tilly is not afraid. She's going to Vasquez right into that fucking nest. Uh, Strangelike says, uh, Strangelike790 says, yes, and I am not afraid. Yeah, there we go. We got a drink with our Vasquez. Absolutely. Tesla Radio says, yes, but they have not traveled here. Very, oh, okay, interesting. Raven Doctor says, yes, visiting Earth. Hope not. Hope not. Yeah, it's true. You go with Stephen Hawking. They you know, could destroy us all. Tony Regime says, aliens exist, but the chances of meeting them are infinitesimally small. Good point. Excellent point. The mathematics of the universe virtually guarantee we are not alone, but those same mathematics virtually guarantee we will never meet them. Just like that. DeLonghair, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Says, I think this planet is uniquely capable of supporting sentient life. Uh, think this planet is uniquely capable of supporting city life. Oh, to think this planet is uniquely capable of supporting city life is highly unlikely. This planet, Earth, or some other planet? Any other planet? It's a lot of space out there. A lot of space. Javier Hara says, I don't believe in aliens or ghosts, but if you see a ghost, who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? All right, it's Ghostbusters. Yeah, obviously, it's Ghostbusters. 
Sarcasm says, aliens definitely exist. The odds of us being the only being in the vast of the universe is infinitesimal. Have any visited Earth? Not until we quit fighting over whose God has the biggest penis. I like that. I like the sentiment on that. I really do. Rodinola's name says, aliens exist, and I'm unconvinced that they're visiting us. Good point. Good point. Lieutenant Jenna says, yeah, if we ran into each other, we'd be insects. Yeah, very true. Very true. Absolutely. So, interesting stuff. Let me, know, let me know down in the comments below. There may be some commentary on this. Love to hear what people think. I definitely want to hear what people think upon this one. Well, that was our last movie of the night. So, you know exactly what time it is. It is that amazing time that everybody is waiting for, especially Raven Darkstar. But she never knows when it's going to happen because it can happen at any time. It's trivia time. <laughs> Oh, that one was for you, Raven. We love you. We love you so much. And I try to time it so it's harder to, like, you know, to dodge it. It is trivia time. As usual, we end every single show with a trivia question. The individual in the live chat, the first individual, I've got the live chat up right now. The first individual to get this answer correct wins a trivia prize from the Weekend Horror Store. And now we're opening up. We were doing season five stuff, but now we're kind of like, we're in November. So now... We're going to do anything. So any, it's all up for grabs. So we're going to do a special item from the web mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. So be the first in the live chat to get this answer correct. Are you ready? Get those Google fingers ready. Like Jamie Lee Curtis's hot dog fingers in absolutely everything. That the Michelle Yeoh film. I can't remember the name. Absolutely everything. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The question tonight is. Sarcasm wants me to hurry up. He needs to get more smokes. Okay, I'm fighting nicotine addiction here, so I got to move. So the question tonight is, what was the name of the episode of The X-Files that parodied Stryber's book, Communion? What was the name of The X-Files episode that parodied Whitley Stryber's book, Communion? The first person to get the answer correct in the live chat wins something from the Weekend Horror Store. I'm very curious. This may require some looking up. This may, unless you're a huge diehard X-Files fan, which I am. <clears throat> so, who's got it? Strange X-79 says, Dwayne Barry. Nope, not Dwayne Barry. Not Dwayne Barry. Not Raven Darkstar either. Apologies, uh, Raven. What was the name of the X-Files episode that parodied Whitley Stryber's book, Communion? Oh, first person in. Oh, look at that. It's Travis Brown. And he got the whole thing. Jose Chung's from outer space. Absolutely. And that was followed immediately by Sir Chasm. Sir uh, Jose Chung. Andrew Rivera got it as well. Uh, got it. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. But congratulations, Travis Brown, for the first, uh, the first episode in November. Travis Brown got it with Jose Chung's from outer space. Absolutely. One of my favorite episodes of the X-Files because they let David Duchovny just kind of go off the, the realm. Plus, it had like, you know, the... Scully wouldn't say cuss words, so it just kept bleeping. Like so, like you had like the the one cop who's like, "Your bleepity bleep aliens are out there," you know. He says he saw a bleepity bleep UFO. That shit was fucking hilarious, and not you know that was just uh, so much. Plus the the, the alien smoking a cigarette. This is not real. I love that shit. So congratulations, uh, congratulations to Travis Brown who got it with Jose Chung's from outer space. There's the only thing I could think of with communion because I remember the 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 book jacket of the aliens just just like the communion one, but the aliens smoking a cigarette. So, yeah, I'm actually thinking about going back and watching it as well after I rewatch Merlin because I fucking love that show. I'm just like I love I just love the the the, the BBC series Merlin. I really do. Probably because I have a huge crush on Katie McGrath, but I also love 
uh, Colin and Angel in that. I thought they were just fantastic. So, but yeah, but now that Angel Colby, yes, great stuff. But um, but yeah, definitely. Congratulations once again, Travis Brown. We will get that printed out and shipped to you ASAP. Well, well done. Yes, the the Men in Black. It looks like Alex Trebek and fucking um, uh, uh, oh, Ben Predator, big guy, Blaine, shit, uh, his governor, Jet, uh, Jay, uh, Jesse. No, fuck. I can't remember his name. Son of a bitch. What was his name? If you tell anyone about this, you're a dead man. I, I love that dude. I really do. God damn. Oh, I told you. I'm tired. I'm going to claim. Um, that's what I'm going to do. Jesse Ventura. I knew it was Jay. Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura and Alex. You, you're getting very sleepy. <laughs> Alex Trebek? Alex Trebek, the game show host? <laughs> fucking love it. All right. But yes, that's it. That, that's going to close this show. I'm just going to blame exhaustion on fucking everything. Because that, Horror Fiends, will conclude this episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. I want to thank you all so much for joining me. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you didn't, please smash that like and subscribe button. And be sure to hit the bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the return of the fisherman in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, the chilling undead horror of The Frozen Dead, the Italian ghoul horror, Nightmare City, and the British found footage, The Zombie Diaries. Be sure to check out Josh Olsen's store at BadSamurai.Story. It has all the awesome artwork you see splattered all over our merchandise. You can find that over at our Teespring link. And for more from Week in Horror, check out all the bloody links that are down in the description. Follow us on the social medias for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, and all kinds of horror shenanigans like the premiere that we just did last night. And support the show through channel memberships right here for 99 cents a month. Super Chats, PayPal, or even through our Patreon for as little as a buck. One buck a month and you help to make cool shit like movies and stuff. What are you waiting for? Join us, as always. Thank you to each and every single one of you out there for being the greatest audience a horror film podcast could possibly have. I've been JL. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.